You are listening to a podcast series of the International Workgroup for Indigenous Affairs. This episode is a recording of a side event at the Conference of Parties number 26th on 9 November 2021. Good afternoon and welcome to our event, which uh, we have chosen to title A Battle for Peoples and Planets, Indigenous Peoples' Rights in Climate Action Under Threat. The objective of this event is to explore uh, to which degree the rights of indigenous peoples are being respected in the negotiations rooms as well as on the grounds in the countries. Um, the idea is to kind of take stock of where we are today, and we mean literally here at COP26 in the beginning of the second week um, with regards to indigenous peoples' rights. We have a panel of speakers lined up who will provide us with um, an impressive collective knowledge and insight into um, indigenous people's rights and human rights in climate policy. They are themselves indigenous representatives from four of the seven socio-cultural regions uh, of the world, and they can therefore also provide first-hand experience on how climate policy, climate policy implementation affects communities on the ground. So um, just to present the panel, uh, Tunga Rai, here to the right, is National Coordinator of the Climate Change Partnership Program at the Nepal Federation of Indigenous Nationalities. Melania Canales is President of uh, the National Organization of Andean and Amazonian Indigenous Women in Peru, on AMIAP. And she is South America Coordinator of the Continental Network of Indigenous Women's ECNIA. And then we have, she's member of the Executive Council of the Asian Indigenous Peoples Pact. Then we have uh, Gideon Sanago. Uh, he's coordinator of the climate program of the Pastoralists Indigenous NGOs Forum in, of Tanzania, which is called Pingos Forum. And last but not least, Graham Reed, who is senior advisor at the Assembly of First Nations and co-chair of the International Indigenous Peoples Forum on Climate Change, which is also known as the Indigenous Caucus here at, at the COP. And my name is Stefan Sossel. I'm climate advisor with the International Workgroup for Indigenous Affairs. Uh, and we are co-organizing co this event with, uh, with NEFIN and with, uh, with uh, AIPP. And just to let you know that the um, uh, event today has simultaneous interpretation in Spanish and English and those of you who are attending either in person here um, or via the online uh, COP26 platform for accredited delegates can access the language channels. Unfortunately, those joining us via YouTube um, will only be able to listen to the floor language. Um, apart from Melania, we will all be speaking in English. Um, and finally, if time permits, we will open the floor for a couple of questions uh, towards the end of the, the event. So, let's turn to the substance. Um, I've given, been given one of these here. Um, today's event takes point of departure in paragraph 11 of the preamble of the Paris Agreement. And I think it's worth, it's a very important paragraph, so I think it's worth, let's just have a read through it. Um, so we all uh, remember how it is formulated and what it is about. It says, acknowledging that climate change is a common concern of humankind, 
parties should, when taking action to address climate change, respect, promote, and consider their respective obligations on human rights, the right to health, the rights of indigenous peoples, local communities, migrants, children, persons with disabilities, and people in vulnerable situations, and the right to development as well as gender equality, empowerment of women, and intergenerational equity. There, um, Gideon, why is this paragraph so important to indigenous peoples? Uh, thank you so much, uh, Stefan. Um, uh, this paragraph is really, really important for indigenous people, and uh, we found it's relevant uh, under this uh, paragraph 11 of the preamble of Paris Agreement uh, because it's really, uh, you know, it is a cornerstone. Of, uh, of the Paris Agreement itself, and it makes parties uh, being held responsible to ensure they respect, promote uh, the right of indigenous people why, when they are addressing uh, climate change uh, policies, climate change programs, climate change uh, projects at their national level. So this is really, really very important because we have seen uh, like, while the climate change brought about the effects and, 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 and effect to, to, to indigenous people uh, globally, but the other thing that we have been witnessed is that uh, the type of the projects uh, or programs that have been formulated at the national level or globally are uh, also affecting indigenous people. So this paragraph really uh, uh, came on time to make sure that it held uh, parties or government accountable to ensure they respect the right of indigenous people and promote their rights uh, while addressing the climate change uh, issues at the uh, national level. Thank you very much, Gideon. Thank you very much. And, and I think this about the, this international agreement trickling down to national policy uh, very key, perhaps, Chunga, um, do you see the obligations of paragraph 11 translating into national climate policy around the world? Thank you, uh, thank you, Stefan. Um, when we say Paris Agreement, climate change Paris Agreement, one of the hope we hold on is the paragraph 11 and the word in the paragraph that is very important to us is human rights and the rights of indigenous peoples. So as to your question, how far this paragraph, this language has been translated into national or international climate action? So when you ask me that question, I am thinking of the communities back home and the realities in the picture of our communities comes to my mind. So if I start from there, then I have heard of a lot of stories and experiences of communities in different parts of the world. And also, um, we have seen many incidences in situation in different countries. So what that situation and stories tell us is that still, Indigenous people's rights and human rights are violated. How? Because we have been facing 
sort of, you know, uh, restriction to our customary livelihood and life who is, uh, restriction to access to our land territories and resources. So we have been feeling a kind of cultural genocide or environmental genocide, and this is very structural. This is very, very much systematic. Putting system in place, we have been displaced from our land and territories in the name of climate action. So where is that language being translated in national action or in climate action at the international level? So this is the experience from different communities. If I can share my experience from my own communities, the Himalayas are melting so fast and the glacier lakes are, you know, uh, being our, are bringing a lot of flash flood. So that has impact from upstream to downstream. So who are around those geographies and those situations is indigenous peoples, you know? So where those issues have been heard, either at national level or international level, almost nowhere. So where can we find the proof that has not been heard is if you read the nationally determined contribution of the countries, if you look at the national adaptation plan of the countries, look at the national communication plan of the countries, then you will find those stories and issues nowhere. That is the clear proof and indication of the violation of human rights, the violation of the rights of indigenous people. So precisely I would say, those commitments, those agreements are not being implemented on the ground. And also at the international forums like here, like COP26, so where our voices are reflected. I'm trying to find our pictures and I'm trying to find representation of our stories in this COP26, but I, find very, very difficult time to find ourselves in the halls, in the negotiations. So that means you can already uh, sense what my conclusion is that it's really the non-compliance of Paris Agreement paragraph 11 into climate action up to date. Thanks. Thank you very much, Tunga. Um, and, and, and you gave examples already of uh, how uh, you, people in Nepal uh, experience violations. Um, perhaps, Melania, if I can turn to you, um, we've, we've heard that despite of the international obligations uh, on respecting uh, human rights and indigenous people's rights in climate action, that is not always triggered sufficiently into uh, national policy and especially not to um, to, to implementation and and, and, uh, and climate action on the ground can you perhaps um, uh, give ex uh, an example of of how uh, climate mitigation or adaptation initiatives infringe the rights of indigenous peoples Bien, uh, 
Bueno, saludando a cada uno de ustedes en nombre de la Organización Nacional de Mujeres Indígenas Andinas y Amazónicas del Perú. Yo quisiera decir Peru, en el Perú, and I want to say that in Peru, when we are talking about mitigation and adaptation measures on the part of the government, but what is being created are those natural areas, natural protected areas, or the uh, Pat cultural patrimony and those used to be indigenous people's territories, but then these protected areas then become part of the state's land or the government's territory. So it is a way of evicting us from our territories. This is what's taking place and many of these protected areas as indigenous peoples when they want to do their activities, like when they want to hunt or fish or collecting their fruits, they cannot go into these protected areas unless they have the authorization of the government. And this is a way of violating human rights rights because first of all they are, we are being dispossessed of our land and what we're seeing is that sovereignty food sovereignty food security within those territories within these territories and lands is being affected and before these lands and territories belong to people to indigenous peoples but then the government has taken over them they say they're the owners and so this is a great concern that we have now in Peru, and we have done a study about these dispossession of our territories and lands. They do it with, in a legal way. They do it with laws and regulations, and this really affects our collective rights as indigenous peoples. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, so that's that's the experience in Peru. Perhaps turning towards towards Asia. Uh, the same question to you. Can you give any examples of how climate mitigation or adaptation or conservation initiatives infringe the rights of indigenous peoples? Yeah. First of all, I would like to say that in Asia, many countries are in similar situation that uh, the country uh, government, they usually say there is no indigenous people in our country or everyone is indigenous people in our country. And another thing is like uh, acknowledge, uh, recognizing the rights of indigenous people in country law and policy, especially in relation to climate change responses. And there is a very limited space for indigenous people in Asia. And in addition to that, um, the Traditional livelihood of indigenous people is uh, not recognized uh, in the uh, climate change adaptation and mitigation, especially the rotational farming that indigenous people have been uh, practiced over many years is uh, seen as uh, uh, not uh, sustainable. And even in the law and policy, they are planned for elimination of those practices. And uh, the practice is not discouraged, discriminated, and even some indigenous people who practice their uh, shifting cultivation are criminalized. And indigenous, in, uh, such in Thailand, the indigenous leader who protect their land and their livelihood has been killed as well. Like those kind of serious situation are uh, uh, the threat to indigenous people as part of uh, climate change response. And for 
earns in AIPP, we have done a study together with IGIR and FAO on the shifting cultivation practices of uh, seven countries in Asia, which are like Bangladesh, Cambodia, Indonesia, India, Laos, PDR, and Nepal, Thailand. And in all those studies, we have uh, concluded and find out that the practice of shifting cultivation is not uh, harming to the uh, environment, also not harming to uh, climate change. And um, a rotational uh, farming of, uh, with a fellow cycle of seven to 10 years is sustainable. And the carbon free footprint is with the limit of, um, uh, with the limit of climate change uh, level as well. And uh, for indigenous women, being a woman, we would like to say that for us, we practice our uh, cultivation um, and uh, since the beginning of selecting seed, uh, trying to do planting, weeding, and also like looking, taking care of the plant growing and harvesting and later preparing the food security of the family. Everything we live with our life and our culture and our uh, every, everyday uh, food are related to this kind of uh, shifting cultivation. And thus, um, like those kind of uh, respecting to our livelihood and our traditional practices are uh, still needed to um, uh, be part of climate change solution, which is happening at the moment. Yeah. Thank you very much. I think this is uh, uh, very interesting to get perspectives from around the world of how indigenous peoples in different regions, different contexts, uh, experience the same uh, challenges in terms of government policy uh, working against them, uh, which is a, a paradox in this, uh, given that indigenous peoples uh, around the world also are stewards of, of, of nature and, and conservation. Um, let's, um, let's now, um, let's now uh, turn towards COP26 now that we have kind of learned of the importance of uh, safeguarding the rights of indigenous peoples, uh, both at international, but national, but also in implementation and community level, that let's, let's look at COP26, where we are now, and take stock of where we are. Um, uh, and, and just to kind of frame that discussion, um, uh, Graham, um, as co-chair of the International Indigenous Peoples Forum on Climate Change, um, can you provide some insights into how indigenous peoples at, here at the UNFCCC uh, coordinate and execute, uh, execute uh, advocacy for, for, for their rights? Yeah, awesome. Uh, so, Anin, uh, good to see everybody and good to join this panel with uh, all of these incredible leaders. And I thought, you know, one thing that would illustrate this question is the, the previous paragraph that we had. And the only reason why, you know, there is direct reference to the rights of indigenous peoples is because of, you know, leaders on the stage. And I think that sort of example uh, exemplifies how indigenous peoples engage in this space and stand up for their lands, waters, and territories. And so at the IIPFCC or the International Indigenous Peoples Forum on Climate Change. Uh, we uh, support, we're also known as the Indigenous Peoples Caucus, all those indigenous relatives who attend COP26 or any other COP and, and support 
uh, their self-determination and their priorities within the space that we, we seek to create. I do want to acknowledge my fellow co-chair, uh, who happens to be at the back of the room, um, as uh, an example of, you know, how do we support the, uh, while acknowledging the kind of specific struggles that have been shared, also work to advance collective solutions to the problems and those key priorities uh, for our voice and for our advocacy. And that's inclusive of, as, as we heard here, the safeguarding and protecting of Indigenous rights. We also advocate for the equitable incorporation and treatment of our equally valid knowledge systems, science, innovations, and practices. We uh, push for the full and effective participation of Indigenous peoples as nations and as governments, recognizing those affirmed rights under the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And obviously, and I think it was articulated here quite eloquently, call on the need for urgent climate action that is transformative and in line with the target that you know, not only has been set, set out by parties, but when Indigenous peoples were negotiating the Paris Agreement, our desire was to keep global warming under one degree. And I think it's important to recognize you know, how we, uh, I guess, share the, the connection that, that we have with the, the lands and waters and territories around us and why you know, urgent climate action is so important. I think the final thing that, that I would share just, and I think it you know, feeds into what are we doing here at COP, there are both formal and informal ways that, that Indigenous peoples participate within this space. So formal ways include, and I'm sure you've all seen the, the opening and closing statements that we have, the participation in, in side events such as this, also the communication through press conferences, but we also work in very informal ways, and that's inclusive of you know, developing bilateral relationships with hopefully all of you who will support uh, Indigenous priorities within COP26, um, but also through you know, actions and other um, activities both within and outside the venue. And I want to acknowledge today that we did have an action, an action honoring uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and, and the disproportionate impact that, you know, our current colonial capitalist system has on, you know, Indigenous women and want to lift up uh, that as, as an important simultaneous priority for the work that we're doing. And then just to conclude, and I think, you know, it's, it's exciting to, to have this space and have all of you here, but we do also have an Indigenous Peoples Pavilion, which is another mechanism for more specific advocacy by Indigenous peoples sharing their um, priorities and perspectives from back home in that space. And so I would encourage you also to check that out um, as a tool to you know, collectively reflect on you know, not only the um, systemic action that is required, but also that personal action in you know, acknowledging the validity of different knowledge systems and how we interact with the land around us, including those you know, more than human beings. And so I'm, you know, really honored to, to join this circle and join this panel and, and really look forward to uh, all of the conversations from these incredible panelists at Chimiquich. Great. Thank you very much. Um, we'll, we'll take questions in the end, if that's okay. Um, and but, but we'll come for that uh, time will, time allow. Uh, just a quick follow-up question, Graeme. 
we just, and, and sorry for not having prepared this, but we learned yesterday that uh, Global Witness, I believe, came out with an analysis of the participation of uh, here, here at COP26, I think the figure is at around 40,000 people, and that um, there are 503 delegates representing the fossil fuel industry, um, which as a single group, they are bigger than the largest delegation, country delegation here. And we don't have a figure on the number of indigenous peoples, an exact figure that are here uh, at, at the COP, but, but my, my guess is it's significantly lower. Any thoughts on, on, on that, you know, also in terms of visibility, because um, they, they, they don't go around with signs. And obviously, we hope that many of you here today are from amongst from this group of 503 people, because we really want you to listen. Uh, so, so any brief thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, I want to acknowledge first that even if we do or don't have a large delegation, like more common than not, indigenous peoples, you know, rise to the occasion of, of standing up for their lands and waters. And I, you know, I think it's um, interesting that, you know, these spaces are created and unfortunately, you know, those have created the problem, get all of this airtime. And I would add to that 500, we also know, and I don't want to be too controversial about this, but we also know that, you know, specific parties have, you know, very conflicted interests with the uh, ongoing maintenance of the fossil fuel industry. And so I think it's um, kind of ironic that, uh, that, we, uh, that we don't have the um, required conflict of interest policy that I know, for example, Indigenous peoples have been pushing for with environmental NGOs across the country. And then also to, to Stefan's second point, one of the things that the Indigenous Peoples Caucus has been supporting for several years now is, is the creation of, of a disability caucus, which uh, in, in both circumstances is really about centering, you know, those voices that are not only disproportionately impacted by climate, but that have the solutions to address it. And so I'm hopeful that, like you, like you said, Stefan, that, you know, those perspectives we can invite into the conversation in order to prioritize the solutions that, you know, we have exemplified here on the ground in our communities that involve our language, that involve our culture, that involve the uh, responsible stewardship and governance of our, of our territories. And we can simultaneously advance that, that decarbonization um, efforts, but at the same time, those efforts for decolonization and, and doing that in a way that lifts up indigenous peoples and their nationhood. Um, and, and maybe I'd stop there. Thanks. And just because I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of, of that you have to leave <laughs> in a couple of minutes, um, and, and thank you very much for, for, for being here. I'm just going to ask you the last question and then move on to the rest of, of the panelists. So uh, now I think it's, it's a good uh, moment to kind of dig down to, to what are the, some of the key issues that are being talked about that are being negotiated here at COP26, which uh, relates to indigenous people's rights and, and will so uh, uh, in, in, in years to come, uh, these, uh, these decisions that are being made here uh, will have a huge impact uh, on the ground. Uh, one of, of, of the thematics that are being discussed is this about loss and damage. Um, and, and 
so, so, so that's quite important for indigenous peoples, especially the focus on non-economic loss and damage. Graham, can you explain why briefly? Yeah, definitely. And uh, I think it comes back to the point that, that we shared here um, and that was shared earlier this week. The unfortunate reality is that our trajectory to addressing the climate crisis is not <laughs> as uh, positive as we would like it. And the implication of that is, is that we face severe loss and damage in our, in our communities. And what that means is, you know, the impacts, the disproportionate impacts of climate are affecting our very ability to interact with the land around us and practice our, you know, our cultures, our spirituality, our, our traditional medicines. And so when we talk about loss and damage in the context of, of non-economic losses, we talk about it in the context of how do we put a number on the cultural and spiritual loss of, for example, you know, losing access to our, our ancestral burial grounds? How do we put a number to the impact of being forcibly relocalized because you know, our island is, is now under sea? How do we put a number to you know, the impact in the Arctic of no longer being able to travel to, uh, to harvest uh, the animals that, that we have a connection with. And I think, you know, what's important in this loss and damage conversation is really that, that it kind of transforms climate from this, you know, bizarre, disconnected, mitigation-oriented problem to something that's very concrete. How are we going to support our future generations in, in their uh, exploration of their cultures and languages? And how do we in uh, through articulating that desire, acknowledge that the unfortunate reality is that, that we are facing these sorts of losses. And I think what's particularly important from the Indigenous Caucus perspective is also acknowledging that, that you know, non-economic losses or loss and damage is not location specific. And we had mentioned earlier that, you know, generally Indigenous peoples are organized in, in seven UN sociocultural regions from across the world. We're in 90 countries, around 400 million people, um, and all of which, irrespective of whether we're, you know, identified in a, in a global north or global south country, are facing these sorts of significant cultural losses. And so, you know, what we here talk about is that need for reparations while at the same time that need for support to maintain the uh, cultural, spiritual, and ceremonial practices that have enabled us to steward but govern our lands for, for thousands of, of years. And so, you know, hopefully within this space, as, as folks are advocating for the inclusion of a permanent agenda item on loss and damage, we can make sure that, you know, we, we recognize the, the kind of geographical distribution of the potential for that. And also, you know, we, in, in characterizing the concept of non-economic losses, we don't just fall into perpetuating that model of thinking that it's only valuable when you can measure it. And it's very difficult to measure these things. And I'm hopeful that, you know, you as participants and in the broader COP start to acknowledge why, you know, these things are so important and why, you know, we, we're, we, we use this language of non-economic losses to really, I think in my mind, talk about our identity and, and hopefully we're in a position where we can support that. I also just want to apologize for, for heading out and, and want to really 
um, <laughs> lift up all the incredible speakers that we have here and, and really look forward to all of you interacting with all of them and, and learning and, and listening from them. So Chimigwech and Chimigwech, Stefan. Great, thank you very much, Graham. Thanks for your time here. Thank you, yeah, random applause. <laughs> thank you very much. And just to, um, uh, I should have put it up here, but, but uh, the IIPFCC, um, which is the Indigenous Peoples Caucus, uh, all uh, the, the, the statements and press releases around that, um, they are on the website iipfcc.org. And uh, Graham mentioned the Indigenous Peoples Pavilion. Uh, all 70 events are live streamed, uh, many of them in multiple languages, and they can be accessed via iipfccpavilion.org, I think. Um, so please go and have a look um, and help uh, share on social media and, and so on and so forth. Great. Um, now, um, moving on. Another topic that are of importance um, for indigenous peoples um, is, is around the local communities and indigenous peoples platform. Um, this is a platform that, that, that was established uh, in, in, in Paris, and it has now a facilitated working group which has existed for a couple of years. And uh, this week, uh, the new work plan for, the, for this platform will be adopted. Um, Gideon, briefly, um, do you see this platform uh, play a role in promoting the rights of indigenous peoples in international climate policy? And if so, why? Uh, thank you, Stefan, again. Um, the, the local community indigenous people platform is really, really uh, important uh, to advocate uh, the right of indigenous people at the international level uh, because, uh, you know, we have been marginalized in, in different ways in terms of policies, not only at our national level, but even at the international level. So it is the right time now to, for the LC, LC to you know, bring issues and concern of the indigenous people to the table for discussion with decision makers uh, at the international level. Uh, we have seen uh, just a couple of uh, four days ago, uh, indigenous people from the globe, including the traditional knowledge holders, uh, came together to share their experiences, uh, the knowledge on how they tackling and addressing the climate change issues, together with the facilitative working groups who have been, uh, you know, a committee or a, a kind of a, a task force that have been, you know, trying to work together with the parties to make sure that indigenous people issues uh, are addressed uh, within the text, different texts, and we have seen references come out under the substa. Uh, so uh, I think, on my perspective. Uh, this is an, a very instrumental uh, body uh, that brings all indigenous people together with parties to discuss about how they are affected with climate change and formulates uh, important policies uh, and issues that of uh, paramount to them. So we have seen um, knowledge holders came together, discuss with parties, share their experiences and how they are affected with climate change. 
So this is an important uh, 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 task, I mean, uh, platform uh, that uh, try to bring about uh, issues of indigenous people from the local ground level, uh, from to the national level, to the international level, such as such as UNFCC. So this is really, it's really helpful. And we look forward for the next three years work plan that it will advance the already existed uh, uh, work that have been done uh, perfectly. And uh, we, it is our hope that a lot of indigenous people will be carried forward and we'll see the outcomes of the, uh, of the work plan ahead in the next COPs. Thank you. Thank, thank, thank you very much, Gideon. Um, great to have those insights. Um, let's, let's turn towards one of perhaps uh, the most discussed topics here at the COP, not only for indigenous peoples, but for all. Uh, this is about the rule book for Article 6. Um, and indigenous peoples, uh, as well as civil society, um, have strongly adv advocated for the inclusion of human rights and indigenous peoples' rights uh, in the text for, or in the rules around um, Article 6. Uh, Tunga, you are following the negotiations, and, and can you tell us what is of particular importance for indigenous peoples uh, in, in these talks around Article 6? And, um, and also perhaps a bit reflect, just, just for people to understand, because having a reference here and there, you know, why is it important? Why, why, why what impacts do, will it have, will these decisions have on people on the ground? And, and maybe also just, just briefly introduce the, the kind of the, 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 the main content of, of uh, Article 6 and, and why it's so controversial. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Stefan, again. I think before responding to your question, also, again, I would like to a little bit uh, give the context to the audiences who are online and also in person here, why we indigenous peoples are here and what brings us here, what helps us to come here. Because, you know, as Grandma already said that, we really acknowledge and have a great gratitude to the power of our communities and also our ancestors who have the great, great power and, you know, their uh, strength to come us uh, up to here and say something uh, or share our realities in the NFCCC. So negotiation and why it's important. Uh, because, as I said, Indigenous peoples, as indigenous people, we have a very distinct realities. Uh, some of you may not uh, be familiar with this, even may not be able to imagine it because the world is so small but also so diverse and distinct for some reason and in some context. Uh, so, you know, before uh, going to the Article 6, I would also like to respond a little bit or toss up a little bit on the political declaration of the World Leaders Summit here in our context and what that really means and what that really indicates to us, at least us as indigenous peoples of Nepal. See, uh, the action on forest and land use. 
So this is really a big, big uh, uh, signal for us. See the land and land use, because land is the root of our everything, our knowledge, our identity, our science, worldviews, and everything. But if those climate actions are going to be implemented in the land, in a land, then is there not a big threat that our roots are going to be, like, we are going to be uprooted, no? See? So this is a very big opportunity uh, to also collaborate with, uh, with uh, our allies and with our other partners, but also it has a lot of potential impacts. And now this political declaration also links with the negotiation in Article 1. Article 1 is about climate mitigation. It, they talk about uh, market approach and non-market approach. Um, Seriously, if you think about my community, our people never think of the reality that I drink water, I buy water to drink in Kathmandu, in city. They never buy water to drink. They get it from river, they get it from the spring. And they never realize the reality that I live in the reality, I have to buy water for drinking. No, now we are talking about climate mitigation, uh, carbon trading, forestry, and so on. So they never think that we can sell carbon credit coming out of forest or out of land or pasture land, something like that. So see the gap, no? Negotiation here is about the modalities and framework of market approach, non-market approach and um, rules and modalities. Likewise, the cooperative approaches, what that really means to us. We have our own customary governance systems that has been in place for generations. We even don't know when that started, and that has been so helpful for us to live in the climatic condition of the Himalayas. You can imagine the condition uh, the climatic condition of the Himalayas in Nepal that never ever failed to uh, help us to adapt in this kind of condition, climatic condition. But if you look at Article 6 and then see cooperative approach, where is the picture of those customary institutions, customary practices, and those kind of distinct worldviews that is really rooted on the ground, rooted in forest, rooted in lands, no? That's why also these issues has become of a very, very high importance for us as indigenous peoples. Negotiators are talking about common but differentiated responsibilities. We indigenous peoples, as people, as common entities, we have a common concern and over our uh, collective domains, but where those actors are in picture in the cooperative approaches, you know, in the rules and modalities. If uh, ITMOs and all those jargons are going to be implemented, then 
What is the ground that is going to be implemented? Where is the uh, ground that all the climate technologies, so-called clean, clean energy sources are going to be installed that is in the land? Potentially that is in the land and territories of indigenous peoples. That's why also it's very important for us. It's very much of our concern. No? So we have a lot of lies, non-indigenous actors and you know, um, people around the world. Uh, they can realize and imagine these kind of realities, but none of the climate action will be implemented inside the hall like this, no? None of the climate action, mitigation action, will be carried out in any of the COPE venues. That has to be translated on the ground. So the report shows that 80% of the world biodiversity exists in the land and territories of indigenous peoples. That is also true to climate action and environmental integrity. So if that is the fact, then where is the space for indigenous peoples to speak out and share our knowledge in the, uh, in the negotiation on climate uh, mitigation, particularly on Article 6? It's very, very worrying situation. It's very, very um, urgent situation that indigenous people should have some space to share those views and you know that knowledge in Article 6. But we have experienced that. We Indigenous peoples come from all socio-cultural regions, seven regions, but we have given two slots, two tickets, or three tickets to get in, and then we are observer. UNFCCC is the supreme body, but you know, those knowledge exists for a generation that's way older than UNFCCC. All of we, us know that UNFCCC was established in 1992, but that's younger than me, but, <laughs> but, but you know, those kind of realities and practices which has huge potential to contribute to climate action, especially also in mitigation, does not have any space in uh, Article 6 negotiation. That's why I say this is very much of importance for indigenous peoples. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and thank you very much, Tsunga. And, and I also know that, um, yeah, round of applause, Tsunga. Um, you uh, are one of those following Article 6, and you're quite busy today and, and these days because the, the fourth iteration of, of, of the text is, is out now, and, and you're, you're very busy in doing your, your advocacy around that. I know the, the caucus, uh, the IIPFCC, has, has uh, uh, issued a, a position on, on this uh, new version, and, and again, uh, it, it's, it's around, if, if I'm not wrong, you know, ensuring uh, references to respecting indigenous people's rights uh, throughout the, the three items that are being discussed. It's, it's about ensuring real and uh, engagement and participation in, in, in all matters. And it's also about um, uh, ensuring an independent uh, redress mechanism and not one under the supervisory body. Um, and, and again, this, uh, these positions are available online, and, and we hope that state parties will, will, will listen into this. But, but uh, Tunga, a follow-up question, if I may, um, because even, 
even if, if, if we get, the, let's say, the right language, the right mechanisms into the rule book for Article 6, um, uh, some would argue that, that any type of market mechanisms inevitably will, will undermine the ambition of the Paris Agreement and effectively kill the 1.5 degree target. What are, what are your views on this? And, and I mean, you can, you can talk uh, on, on behalf of, of, of yourself and not as, as the group, perhaps, because, uh, yeah, it's just, just interesting yeah, to hear. Uh, yeah, as I said, the disclaimer, I can speak on my own behalf, or at least on behalf of indigenous peoples of Nepal, as I work with Nepal Federation of Indigenous Nationalities, which is the representative uh, federation of all indigenous peoples of Nepal. So, yes, uh, but the most important thing is the thing we talk here, market approach, non-market approach, carbon market, and so on, everything, those are just the huge uh, jargons and principles, and those are just the theories. But the uh, life we live in every country is in practice, no? Unless the theories are translated into practice, it doesn't work, and I would say it doesn't exist. That's somewhere in the vacuum. This is somewhere in this space. But if the market approaches uh, get into implementation, uh, the first thing we have been demanding is the rights of indigenous peoples and safeguarding human rights and rights of indigenous peoples. That includes, uh, that includes how that uh, climate approach or um, carbon market would benefit indigenous peoples uh, and other marginalized communities, including government, but also contribute uh, to the global net emission at large. If it's just a uh, emission reduction in one place, but not at a global uh, net global emission in general, that doesn't make sense. It's just the, you know, the displacement of emission from my place to your place, or from our territory to her territory. So carbon market really have to go beyond this limitation. It should address the net emission, uh, global emission. Only then it makes sense in, uh, in a global action. So I'm not in a position to say that carbon market is a total disaster or also a huge opportunity. It depends on how it is implemented and where, how. So as we uh, learned that there are a lot of WS questions like how, where, when, so it depends on all of those, you know, the, the um, faithfulness, compliances, and all these things, yeah. yeah. Thank you very much Thank uh, you. for your insights on, on this topic. Um, and let's now uh, move, move on to a topic that, that Tsunga already has touched upon, and that's, that's a bit about finance, but more specifically, um, well, sorry, no, not, not finance. It's, 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 it's a, this global leader's declaration on forests and land use, which, which um, Chunga mentioned. Um, it was launched on the 2nd of November. 
uh, under the world, during the World Leaders Summit. And uh, to date, more than 130 state parties have committed to collectively halt and reverse forest laws and land degradation by 2030. Um, and these countries have more than 90% of the world's forests. Um, so, and, and, and linked to this declaration, there's been a number of financial pledges. One of these is $1.7 billion towards promoting the land uh, tenure of indigenous peoples and local communities. And, and turning to you, uh, what are your thoughts on uh, this declaration and the financial pledges? And, and what, do you, what, what do pledges like this mean for indigenous peoples in, in, in your region? Do, do you think, do, do they constitute only an opportunity, or just an opportunity, or, or perhaps also a threat to, to a certain degree? Yes, uh, first of all, uh, for many years, although indigenous people, they are, uh, they, there is a prominent role that they can play and contribute to the climate change response. Uh, although they are not the main contributor to causes of climate change, they are also at the same time uh, adversely impacted from those climate change uh, happening in uh, their region. Uh, there is no uh, fund uh, that uh, solely dedicated for indigenous uh, community working at the, at the ground level. That's the reason indigenous people have been asserted for many years to come up with those kind of um, funding uh, for, uh, dedicated to them in, in order for them to be able to act at the local, uh, local and um, at the ground level. And that's the reason we welcome uh, this uh, declaration and the financial pledges. Um, but uh, only the pledges will not be enough for us in a way that uh, sometimes uh, when we encounter in some country in Asia that uh, there are certain action or uh, activity targeted to work together with the indigenous people. However, in reality, indigenous people just fell in the seat and just uh, uh, have to uh, say yes to what the plan is there. Uh, this kind of thing should not be happening along with this pledge because um, indigenous people, full and effective participation and meaningful representative in all of those uh, action, uh, since from the design, the implementation, uh, and then monitoring and reporting all of those stages, there should have uh, uh, full and effective participation at the same time. In order to implement uh, the action on the ground, they should have a free prior and informed consent with indigenous people. Uh, and this kind of uh, respect on their rights and their role is very much important. Uh, and unless that, uh, they will have a pledge, but uh, there is nothing make change on the ground. That's our concern. And uh, we would like to highlight this uh, here as well. And um, for us, like in AIPP, we are an organization of uh, more than, working in more than 14 countries and also of more uh, around 47 member countries. We have been working like that at the ground level for more than three decades, uh, working with indigenous community. Uh, we have so many experience of um, 
things that to overcome along with uh, those um, action uh, to be able to reach on the ground. And that's uh, the thing that we have, uh, uh, we have uh, seen so far, no? along with the police. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, good to have, have insights from the Asia region on, on, on this. Um, and um, perhaps uh, I'm conscious of time, so um, I'm just going to uh, turn to, to our um, last topic from the kind of the negotiations and talks, which we will talk about today. Um, and, and that is uh, about uh, gender. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, Melania, um, at COP25, um, parties agreed on a gender action plan. Um, can you tell us a bit about um, if you think uh, the issue around gender is sufficiently considered in climate policy, perhaps both at UNFCCC level, but also at, at, at national level. Um, and, and can you also reflect a bit on, on what indigenous women are bringing to this COP and, and what they expect to get out uh, from this COP? We've all, all already heard Graham uh, uh, reflect a bit on this, but it would be very good to hear from your perspective as an indigenous woman and uh, 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 representative of the indigenous women uh, of the Americas. I would like to say, first of all, that in Peru, well, there is a plan, there is a gender plan, and a climate change that has been approved. However, there exists as many uh, other laws, regulations, but then from there to implement them, there's still a gap. We're still not implementing this gender plan. So, and then on the other hand, when we started to talk about indigenous women, it's always spoken of the inequality among between men and women, but other systems of inequality or domination are not being discussed, like racism that is indigenous women are experiencing, or like colonialism or extractive industries. Extractive industries, for example, not only are we talking about extractivism, destruction of Mother Earth, Mother Nature, but also the extractivism of our knowledge, which is another way of extractivism that we are experiencing as indigenous women. That's why not only do we do we need to talk about the inequality that exists between men and women? I think that that's important to take this into account. And likewise, what, I'm, what I also see is that there's no commitment. There's no financial commitment, as can be said. Uh, we've heard at this COP, there's no commitment for indigenous women. Uh, that are organized. It's spoken of indigenous peoples in general, but not as of indigenous women that were also affected in a different way by climate change. It's not the same way that, that we're being affected as indigenous women. So we have to take this into account as well. And also, as indigenous women, our agenda 
is always focused on the struggle of protecting our territories, our lands and territories. We think about it in a holistic way. We not, not only do we think about the forest or the river, not only do we think about the glaciers, rather we're always thinking about it in a holistic way, the complete gamut. Because if, if our forests are affected, it's going to affect our, everything in our territory. It's going to affect the oceans, the glaciers. So I think that this is part of our struggle as indigenous women. And in the same vein, as indigenous women, we have been re-evaluating, recovering our knowledge, our wisdom, our science, and our ancestral technology. In spite of the fact that they've always said that your science, your technology, it's useless. However, as indigenous peoples, we've also we've always had science and technology, and especially within that framework, we have continued to work on the recovering of the of this knowledge for adaptation and mitigation. For example, the harvesting and the, of water, which is an ancestral way of knowing as indigenous women. So I think that we are transmitters of this knowledge and wisdom. So this is something that we have been working on. And we're, we're talking about this at this COP. Additionally, we are seeing as the topic mentions um, intergenerationally. Not only do we have to keep this knowledge as women, but rather we have to share this intergenerational knowledge with the young women that, so that they can continue to reassessing and thinking about future generations, not just about the present, but always about future generations. As indigenous women, we always say that we are just here. We're, we're passers-by. We have inherited our lands and territories from our ancestors, and now we have to leave them to future generations. So I think that this is what we have as a voice as indigenous women from Latin America. Thank you very much. The work that Onomiev is doing in Peru is amazing, um, and and, uh, and 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 also here, I, 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 you mentioned a lot of important things there. Just just one uh, thing, and I think that goes towards this focus about forest. Um, that um, you mentioned this about looking at at the territories as a whole. You know, not just not just focusing on, on the forest, but all the ecosystems, because it's all interrelated. So what's happening in the mountains, the Andean mountains, will affect the, um, the, 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 the Amazon forest as well. And so uh, I think that's a call as well for, for, for international cooperation to, to not forget uh, or own, purely focus on, on forest communities. Um, uh, yeah, th thanks, thanks so much. Um, uh, Melania, we have to move on. Um, just before uh, we we do the the Q and A here, um, we uh, should uh, perhaps have a quick look at uh, the future into the future here. Um, Gideon, um, the next COP, COP twenty seven, we hear that it'll be in Africa, um, and you're from this region. Um, can you tell me if indigenous peoples in Africa have particular hopes or 
aspirations for, for COP27. And also, can you tell us a bit about how uh, the indigenous peoples in Africa are organizing themselves to, uh, as, as, as representatives uh, and also with, with communities on a national level? Um, yeah, please. Yeah, thank you. Um, Africa region is one of the hotspots in the world and Africa uh, have affected by the impact of climate change in so different ways, including severe droughts, uh, floods, diseases, both for livestock and people. Uh, a lot of poverty has increased. So we are looking forward to host the next COP27 in Africa, where it is a vulnerable region uh, on climate change related issues. And uh, we hope that a lot of uh, climate actions uh, will be you know, uh, reached and uh, action will be taken uh, to address the impact of climate change to vulnerable communities like indigenous people. But we should also not to be, to be not too optimistic. We should really you know, lower our expectations because we have been seeing a lot of promises which are uh, the, 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 the promises for the developing parties, uh, but uh, no actions that we are realizing in, on the grounds. Uh, our people, our indigenous people still suffering a lot. So it's just like uh, we are going to host this uh, COP27 like other COPs that have been held different parts of the world. So it is our uh, expectation that uh, that COP will address the needs and concern of the uh, indigenous people around the globe. And um, on how we organize ourselves, uh, at the end of this COP, uh, the leadership of the caucus uh, will hand over the, 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 the leadership to uh, the next COP co-chair, uh, who is, will be from Africa. So we will also announce uh, who will chair uh, or become a co-chair from Africa at the end of this uh, COP. And also around March, we will hold a regional uh, workshop to organize ourselves uh, in, in, in Africa on how to host uh, this conference in our region. And so we'll bring also a, a number of representatives from the indigenous people from the grounds, our leaders, uh, knowledge holders as well, uh, so that we organize this uh, event in a, in a good manner. So we look forward for you to guys to host you in, in Africa, in Egypt, and the co-chair uh, probably will be either from the Arabs uh, uh, country or uh, any, but we look forward to host you guys. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, interesting. and. Um Thank you, Gideon. Um, interesting to look a bit ahead, uh, right? The, the COP 27, uh, 26 will be finished in a couple of, of days, but then there will be a whole process until next year. Um, it won't be that visible, it won't be in the news that much, but uh, a lot will happen, um, and, and I'm sure indigenous peoples will be following, engaging uh, in, in all the advocacy around that. Um, we have uh, less than 10 minutes uh, left. Uh, I'm just gonna spend um, a couple of minutes, I think, first to just, uh, before the Q&A, to just uh, 
uh, briefly uh, inform you about this publication. Uh, it's our annual uh, report, it's called The Indigenous World, and it reports about the situation of indigenous peoples um, around the world, as well as in international processes such as the UNFCCC. Uh, so the chapter in UNFCCC has been co-authored by, uh, by Tsunga and, uh, and Graham, who, who is here, and, and uh, so there are loads of, of uh, indigenous and non-indigenous activists uh, who, 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 who write chapters. There's a chapter on, on, on each country um, where, where we have uh, contributors, and, and, and uh, it's not specifically on climate change, but it's this, on the situation of indigenous peoples all around the world. Indigenous peoples are being prosecuted, as we've heard today. They are human rights defenders risking their lives. Many people uh, uh, each year risk their lives in defense of their territories, of nature, um, and, and of their rights. Um, and, and this is reported in, in this, uh, this reference book. So, uh, sorry, I forgot that I have here. I don't know if the QR code are working for you guys out there, maybe for, for people listening online. Um, but uh, please uh, have a look at this um, uh, PDF. Uh, we also have a couple of copies here, uh, not many though. Um, and, and, uh, and remember also uh, to, to have a look when, when we launch it uh, next year, the 2022 version. Uh, so um, now it's time for, for Q&A. Um, uh, so I'd like to open the floor for the participants either to ask questions or, or comments. Uh, there are four uh, uh, microphones here, and also for those of you who uh, follow online at the COP26 uh, platform for uh, accredited delegates, uh, you can uh, ask for the for the for the microphone, and, and it'll come on my screen here. So uh, first, um, yourself. Thank you. Thank you so much for this wonderful panel. My name is Brandon Levy from the Sustainable Ocean Alliance. And my question for the panel is that, do you believe that the world leaders that are in the negotiating rooms see the earth as a living being or as a machine? And if it is a machine, what is the best way to bring the worldview to more of a living planet? Thank you. Yes, um, because if we look at COP is already 26 mean already many years, that uh, we have uh, have to reach out our message. Uh, the world is uh, crying uh, for many years, and indigenous people for us also we there, uh, we are living with nature and living with our uh, uh, our, our all our life depend on this nature, but. Uh, for us, the, the, the thing we care for uh, to become um, uh, the interest and the value for them is take also time. But the, the most important thing is that um, people, they, every, every human being, they will try to stand on their, uh, on their, on their point that uh, they have bring up for, but climate change is not for that. And uh, climate solution not 
will not walk uh, with one perspective, standing on their own point, looking at the wall and the earth as kind of a non-living thing. We all need to come together. That's the reason that we are here, becoming the voices. And like this kind of uh, panel we arrange is also for the people like you who are joining us, be the voice for us as well. And uh, therefore, you can, we all have to raise our voice louder and louder in a way that can reach all our message to their heart, not in the head. Thank you. Sí, muchas gracias. La pregunta, yo quisiera decir, nosotras las mujeres indígenas somos defensoras de las vidas. No solamente somos defensora de la vida Only de los seres humanos, defend the lives of human beings, but of mother nature, of mother earth, of animals, plants, because they are living beings. And for us, they should not be considered objects, but as a subject of rights. Why? Because the rights of mother earth are human rights. The well-being and the peace that Mother Earth is in is our well-being as human beings. So if Mother Earth is healthy, so will we. And that is why we're fighting in its, its defense, because oftentimes women are considered objects and not subjects of right to date, which is why many of our brothers say, my women. That's a, an expression, is sexist that is there present. So I believe we are defenders of Mother Earth. Insightful. We have uh, just less than three minutes left. Unfortunately, I think there will only be time for one question more, uh, but uh, and, and, and a quick response. So please go ahead. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. Um, my name is Safia. I'm a young climate change activist from Chad. And my question is, why aren't um, more minority communities, such as nomadic communities, being more represented at COP? because I've not seen one person from our community being represented, yet we're seeing, well, in Africa, we're seeing the most biggest impact of climate change. And the government keeps trying to silence our voices, yet the more we scream, no one is listening to us. And if they want a more diverse or come to a bigger conclusion, then shouldn't everyone be involved in the decision-making tables? They, it's very discriminative, and I would say, not everyone can speak English. So yes, not everyone can be represented, but surely we can fit everyone in these decisions because governments are not doing what people on the ground are needing. People are suffering. People, desertification is happening everywhere. Millions of people are dying, but they're not doing anything. So how can more minorities such as nomadic people be represented in these decision-making seats? Because we're not even recognized. So we have a long way to go, so. Thank you very much. I think, yeah, just a round of applause for this comment. Uh, I think it's more common than the question, but 
and, and you're so right, perhaps, Gideon, uh, final, final, uh, just a yeah. brief thought on this. Thank you, and I congratulate you to be here in the UNFCC. Uh, I am from the pastoralist communities. I'm a Maasai, so you are my fellow uh, nomads. And I representing the voices of the pastoralist communities. There's also Hindu from Chad. He's also from the pastoralist communities. So we are trying to bring the voices of the nomads uh, people to these negotiations. And also back to our homes, we are, we are trying to coordinate ourselves to make sure that you know, we address the right of indigenous people, uh, pastoral indigenous people in Africa. But you are very right. In Africa, we are facing uh, you know, this uh, lack of recognitions and it's really make us become more vulnerable. So our way of living, our way of you know, uh, grazing and with pastoralism is, is seen as primitive and it's seen as it is a backward uh, way of living, but that is our livelihoods. So we are trying harder to make sure that our voices are heard at the national level, at the international level, and work together with our brothers and sisters from the globe to ensure that our issues, our rights are really heard uh, within the, the, the context of climate change generally. So thank you, and I congratulate you. Thank, thank you very much. Um, th thank you all. Um, it's been an honor to, to, to have you uh, to be moderating this event today. Um, so I wish to thank the panel of speakers um, and the audience um, who have been here today. Um, a random applause to, uh, to everybody here. And um, we hope that, that everybody will, will listen and remember these messages today about uh, you know, the importance of safeguarding indigenous people's rights in climate action. And so please keep up the good work that, that you're all doing and the advocacy that you're doing out there. Thank you very much. Thanks. You have listened to a recording of A Battle for Peoples and Planet. Indigenous Peoples' Rights in Climate Action Under Threat, an official side event held at the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, 26th Convention of Parties, on 9 November 2021. This episode is produced by the International Workgroup for Indigenous Affairs, IWGIA. You can learn more about Evgia's work at www iwgia.org. Thank you for listening.